Hello, my name's Gregory Wilker. Thank you for listening to my podcast, Live with Greg. Today is November 17th, 2019, and last night I learned that my podcast had way exceeded the resources I have to keep it alive as a video podcast. So I am actively working to move it to an audio podcast. The video is still available on my website, gregorywoker.com, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Live With Greg. Thanks for your support. We are here with a final episode of Live With Greg, and I'm here with September and Sarah. And... <laughs> 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 now we're all frozen up. We were all... <laughs> <laughs> just like rubbing your mouth. <laughs> Academic term is bio. Well, bioethics is, is a... Bioethics is actually, um, that's a subset of the field of ethics, which is the field of philosophy. And it's, bioethics is about science and technology and how they are both applied uh, and how they are thought of. So bioethics is sort of looking at autonomy and justice and beneficence. And in most of modern society, a lot of that is apportioned by race and class. What was that class word you used? By, by began with the beneficence. Beneficence. It's actually the thing that should have been used first, right? Um, because beneficence is the obligation to do good with the resources that you have. The obligation. The obligation. The moral obligation to do good, right? And then autonomy is the. Um, it's actually the assurance of a capacity for people to act in their own best enlightened self-interest. And then justice has to do with the balancing of of burdens and benefits and and providing equity. But more than anything, it's to make sure that justice isn't sameness. Justice is the equal poise which is that everybody gets what they need. So when you look at things in medicine and technology, for instance, if you go into a washroom at a big theater, right, movie theater, you immediately see that if you're a woman, that there are less toilets historically for women, okay, um, than are needed because it takes women longer to get out of their bridges, sit on the toilet, to all those things than it does to be able to go to a urinal or just be in a toilet. So it's not just, even though there's two stalls, just like there are two stalls in the men's room. That's equal, but it's not just because the need is greater for more stalls in the women's room. So modern architecture is starting to accommodate for that and say, gee, well, we need to have more stalls here and because the lines are out the door and down the street for women, right? They'll miss the, you know, the next picture. So, so equity and equipoise are different but are part of justice. So. Yeah, for a quick funny story, yeah. I went with my daughter to one of the Stone Grove concerts last summer and the line for the men's room was long, and the women's was going like this. Really? And it was commented on 
like I was in line for about eight, ten minutes, mm-hmm. and it was the topic. Like women oh, were celebrating. <laughs> it was so like what you said, like some so they actually, have they rebuilt mm-hmm. the bathrooms. They must, have. So they, they must have. They must have. Yeah. But it's uh, so so equity has to do and equal poise have to do with getting people what they need. Yeah. So a lot of my work, whether it's been in medicine or been in academia or in film and in writing and uh, publishing is all about bioethics. So let me stick a pin in that. That sounds so stupid. But this other... So there's a quote from your book that has stuck with me, and I'm not going to get it right. But it was something about if you really love someone... Letting them go is cowardness. That's oh, that's my book. That's your book. Yeah, that's her book. Uh, I, I thought it was from Stella. It. No, no, no. But there's like it's it's actually it's a subject. Oh, it is chasing Mercury. You're right. It's You're like right. here. So and that yeah. So it's it's that it's important. It's a, it's okay. It's a no. So but it's important because she can probably answer this question though because mm-hmm. the front part of it is what makes it important. In the time of mercury poisoning, loving someone enough to let them go is for cowards. So mercury poisoning becomes the catch-all for all kinds of toxics and poisons and and sicknesses in society. That this idea that when you are at war with with all of these phenomena that you're going to like play around with. You know, loving somebody enough is, you know, you should let them go. And it's like, no, you should struggle with them. <laughs> you should get it done, right? And you should love them. And you should not let them go at that point in time. You should figure out how you can deal with the mercury poisoning or how to deal with the war, how to deal with sort of like everybody is so exhausted by the political situation in Washington, so let's just check out, and you're interested in it, and I'm not, so I'm sorry, I'm going to go do something else. This is not the time for that. <laughs> right? When you have a change that needs to be made, that's when love has to pull you together so you can get it done. So that was it's also, it's also dramatic structure, too, <laughs> to be technical. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> well, you know... Um, so I was born and raised in a theater, and and I think that I think I've seen al- I think I've seen almost most plays that have been written, and lucky enough to have seen a lot of African plays as well. Um, but tension is natural if you're a writer. You you need to have you need to have some fight, you know, and and there's been a movement in the last ten years of liter- in literature which has been about things resolving themselves very nicely, you know? Almost like literature sort of reflects a lot of movies you go to now, where mm. there's a happy ending. Mm. So can you imagine that September's taken on um, mercury poisoning and put characters into it? Um, so the, the quote that you're thinking about now is about how those characters can't disengage, and the reader is forced to stay, too. And the reader's forced to stay. And in my work, what I'm interested in, probably coming from the theater, is how characters are embroiled too. Um, and when Stella, her brain is, she has 
epilepsy. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but her brain, she believes, is in the end, is poisoned somehow. And so the questions about the environment and the questions about our relationships with each other is, do we leave each other when things are kind of crappy? Or there's mercury poisoning or there's epilepsy. So I think those that question of not leaving, you know, the question of loyalty right, right. is really, there's like a tension point in, in writing and in art right now, which is art that, which is great. It's like, you know, fluff, beautiful right. dancing, right. which is lovely, like a beautiful dress. Right. And then there's literature, which is all about grappling and art that's grappling with loyalty. And I think that we're, I think we're really, I'm really interested in what makes people, what makes characters loyal, what makes them stay. And what makes them go? I, I, I think that's really well said. I mean, it's sort of like, there's always a reason to go, and there's always a reason to stay. Yeah. And in, in my book, and I think in, mm-hmm. in what Stella sees as well, mm-hmm. which is, is Sarah's book, that the, the reasons to go and reasons to stay potentially have equal weight. So what is the what is the dividing line back to bioethics mm-hmm. it's your morality that's how you choose right. <sighs> boy a lot flooding too <laughs> yeah. um, should, we should have warned him because morality mm-hmm. is subjective often so is there a universal morality? So, probably not in the normal sense, but, you know, religion is an odd thing, but there is a point in most religion and in most points in histories where people, human beings, the common person, the common man, woman, has a certain understanding of the difference between right and wrong. It can be situational. So if you see, if a dog came up here and you got up and kicked that dog, we would say that is inhumane and it is immoral for you to to do that. I would. Okay. Um, If there was a child sitting next to that dog and that dog was lunging at and you got up and kicked the dog. That would not be immoral. So the question is, is that what is it, the intuition, the moral intuition of human beings that let them know? So if you, um, in the Catholic Church, you cannot um, have First Communion uh, until you are age seven. It happens to fold in with about the right time in a child's development where they really understand the difference between right and wrong. Because that's a developmental activity. Um, So at age seven, you can have your first communion because before you can have your first communion, you must have your first confession. And if you don't know what to confess, it is a false confession. So you so so I don't know exactly what it is, but there is a gut level response that says that's not right. Like the entire dialogue about end of life care, it's mm-hmm. sort of like, 
when we knew that we could take care of people and keep them breathing, whether or not their minds were alive, for until their brains went to liquefaction, right? That was a different question about when we should let people go without a lot of medical intervention. Before we knew that we could do this, keep them alive in this suspended animation state, it wasn't a question. So you can say that's relativism, but in fact, human beings and consciousness change with information and understanding. Could I, could I interject about a decision for me to uh, be published by September? Um, you know, we were both shopping our books around. So I didn't, we didn't know that we had both written a book where both the leading characters, young women, had epilepsy, which is wild. One was black, one was white. One was a dancer, one was an artist. I had no idea. And we met and then started working together. Well, you brought me into the National Writers' Union, so we've been doing social justice work with literature and so on and so forth. And I was just sort of grappling with the fact that my, you know, both of us were talking, you were talking to, had serious agents, and I'm, we were talking to serious houses and things. I sort of, one day, September just turned to me and said, I'd really like to publish you. And it wasn't, it didn't, <laughs> it didn't take me, it took me half a second to say I'd be honored. And the reason why was because of the issue of bioethics, both of well, both of our books, but I could just say about that book is, as related to why I think you chose it, was that we're dealing with the issue of consent. In both books, two young women are sick. And they're constantly dealing with what is what are the rights of that person? Do the doctors treat her well? Do they, do they ask both of these characters what they want? Do the people in their lives or her life and Stella's life, uh, do they listen? Uh, my character, a little more than yours, is run through a whole battery of new tests and new inventions and not really taking in the, the morality of asking her if she really wants it because she's young. And so it was one of the... It was really... Yeah, it was really that one was, of the reasons. I mean... I, I don't know if it's why you We had known it. one another. Yeah. We had known one another, but it wasn't like I didn't know. I didn't know what she was writing. We knew each other from previous yeah. stuff. Project, yeah. Right. yeah. So from my experience, that's a great example of what you have been talking about of choice and when do you leave and when do you go. Mm -hmm. Because in my experience, there was a spark that started a business. And I imagine there's been some challenge since that initial spark of... Yeah, I mean, it's... Challenges between us, you mean? No, no possibly, no. but oh, like oh, business, yeah. and here, and it could be semantics. It's you know when, for one, businesses are hard, and especially publishing, especially in this current age. Um, and when things get hard, I, relationships get hard, and, and and it could be semantics. Uh, can I can I speak as the person who's been published? Yes. <laughs> so, 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 for me, it, it's going to be hard for someone who's coming out of Simon and Schuster, or for someone who's coming out of a specialized publishing house like September's 
which I predict will have a ton of books, even if she wants it or not, we're going to she's gonna have to hire people okay. to do it. And quite frankly, right because there's I so many more than <laughs> so many ones to be published by September. Because when you have a point of view, now, granted, Simon Schuster and the big houses have divisions which have really very specific points of view that are, that are amazing. In this situation, September's put forward that you don't really have bioethics, but the ethics of people and where they come from, what their journey is, books about the journey and their ethics. That, for writers like us that are literary writers, this is like a dream. So, for me, there has been no problem whatsoever. <laughs> she's, she may be going crazy, but I'm, you know. <laughs> it sounds to me like you've really shouldered the business aspect of this and allowed your artists... It was an, ac- it was an accident. Um, <laughs> it was an accident. So I have to say that I, I started writing Chasing Mercury. I've always been a writer. I worked even in high school and undergrad and all, all the way through. I've, part of my income has come from writing. But I wanted to write Chasing Mercury because it was directly related to the signing of the Minamata Convention on Mercury. That, um, so a quick, a, a quick review of UN. Okay. So do you remember when the air was so bad in San Francisco and L.A. that you could not breathe it because there was lead in it and all kinds of other pollutants like you could not breathe it? Well, I remember growing up in L.A. and having days we were all inside. Right, right, so those, those days, okay. Well, and then there were conventions put forward by the United Nations working groups to actually decrease the amount of lead in gasoline and lead pollution in the environment uh, to stop manufacturing paints. With what's, And it's taken, you know, 30 years to kind of do that, but immediately you began to notice the difference in the air in L.A., as soon as some of the toxins were taken out of the gasoline. Well, that that is a process that happens because of a very organized, dedicated group of people at an international level going through the UN to put together a convention that explores all the science and all of the sociological things and then gets a bunch of people to sign off on the concept that there should be an international move to stop that bad thing from happening. And then, after the convention, gets 50 member nations of the United Nations to agree that they would support political action in their nations to enact the convention, it gets ratified as international law. And then you run around and you try to get people to actually do that, to actually do the things that to make the steps. And it's a complicated process. Well, around mercury poisoning, first mercury poisoning was discovered to really be set between 1956 and 1960. In Minamata, Japan, we knew what was causing this disease. In Canada, it took them a bit longer to admit that it was going on, but finally, eventually, after years, they did that. So the point is, is that I wanted to write a book to honor the Minamata Convention that was written in 2013, because it a, was a big part of my um, understanding of science and um, justice issues in science and medicine. And um, 
it was scheduled to be ratified by 2017. And that meant 50 nations going and saying, yes, we can do this, we can do this, we can do that. We can ratify. Okay, so four years after it was first signed. Well, I got in touch with a lot of people, or they got in touch with me, because I was the only person that was writing a novel about this stuff, not an academic book. And people supported me and got information to me and did all of these things because it was sort of the democratization of information to people that, besides the usual subsets. I started um, with all kinds of wonderful people. I shopped the book to... Um, and one day, I shopped the book to nine agents, and eight of them wanted anywhere from three chapters to a hundred pages and all these sort of things, and were, were intrigued by it. But ultimately, what it comes down to is that people are attracted to things as agents which they know they can sell. And they have a niche that they are working in. Well, there's not there. This is a love story about a black epileptic ballerina, and and a powwow dancing whistleblowing journalist that turns on the history of mercury poisoning. Now, there's no other book that looks like that, so there's nothing to compare it to in terms of a genre that you think you might be able to sell. Number one, it's cross-cultural, it's cross-racial, it's international, right? And all of those things don't usually go together in in the world of genre fiction. The point is is that I felt forced to start a publishing company because I wanted to be in Geneva when the first conference of the parties who had signed the Minamata Convention were gathered after it was signed into full law. And that was in September 2017. So the interested parties in my book were projecting out by two years that it would take to get so that would be next year and I wanted to arrive in Geneva with the gift of the book well I didn't need to do a quick print book so I took my subsidiary rights right which I knew about because I'm a member of the National Writers Union so my ebook and my my ebook and my audiobook rights are subsidiary I took them and I created the ebook and the audiobook because mid-level diplomats really don't have houses full of books, so they needed electronic stuff. And I said, okay, let me see if I can learn how to do that. Well, I live in Northern California. I have an Apple guy that lives in my house. I know the people at Command Productions. I can. So I realized after I'd done that that the print book. Was a piece of cake. Mm. I mean, that was the hard part. The ebooks are the hardest thing in the world, right? uh, especially with mm. the Cove International Publishers um, uh, uh, copy editor and software engineer uh, Eric T. Carlson. I mean, he's like he's created a complete template for this book. For, for what Stella sees. He chose to have it have its own unique look that didn't come off of some boilerplate. So the point of all of this is, is that, so here I was with the capacity to publish the print book. So I contacted uh, publishers and friends and I said, gee, like, should I do this? 
like, what, what do I have to do to, to make this real? And the answer was, walk down to the Kainasti, fill out a piece of paper, and give them $35, and have it announced in the uh, local newspaper for four weeks in a row, right? And you, it's, it's a publishing house. It's amazing the places that have started that way. And there's a history of this. I mean, the, the history of writers starting in prints, particularly not so much here in America, but in Europe, is, you know, is ancient. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's even, and especially women writers that would find ways to, I mean, people know about Gertrude Stein in right. Paris right. because she would hold a salon and, and take this role that, that September has, which is identifying artists and bringing them together. Uh, she don't think she had an imprint, did she? She may she have had one. I, think she I had don't one. think she had an imprint. But she would have now. She would have running the world right. now. But uh, you know, for it's, if I might just sort of just say something, just hit me while you were talking. Was it how I got to to the work? We both have come to our books now, as I think about. Daya, is that of the issue of the uh, emergency of health? So from September's perspective, it was getting to Geneva, and quite frankly, how extraordinary that is, that that's even the, the motivating factor is to have information that can get to people in a different format is quite amazing. I was, some years ago, having these seizure-like episodes, which made me interested in what a seizure was. I wasn't having an actual biological seizure, that would not be true, but I was having these seizure-like anxiety episodes and I got really interested while being in them what it was what it might be like if I could describe it for someone else and I think one of the reasons why in my book she also this character is taken from place to place they're trying to fix her is she, is she really broken though I mean the question is they're just trying to fix her and she ends up in France okay She's even friends aren't so far away either, now that I think of it. But I think that what made me feel comfortable um, as an author coming in with a, a book that I've been working on for some years, I think now is that you were a doctor. <laughs> because, if I, because if, you know, if I got sick again, um, you know... <laughs> There's else? funny that happened with this with, with mm -hmm. these two books, mm -hmm. which is that um, my developmental editor in my book is a <laughs> woman named Susan Dalton, who really taught me more about myself and about writing than anybody has ever done. And a um, I literally met someone by accident who, at like a banquet setting, who was introduced to me, and I was introduced as a writer and a filmmaker to him, and he asked me what I was writing, and I gave him a canned version of it uh, that took two seconds, and he said, what do you need for your book right now? And I said, oh, I need a developmental editor. I had figured that out the day before. <laughs> I didn't even know what that was until the day before. I knew what a copy editor was. I knew what, you know, and those sort of things. And he wrote down the name on a piece of paper. This is how I got my developmental editor. It was one of the, you know, my heart just soars every time I say your name. Uh, a consummate professional, had uh, 
ultimately, um, that started out at B. Dalton and moved up the ranks and for a period of time uh, was the publisher of Miramax Books. The reason I say that is that when I asked her what her job had been at Miramax, because she's been retired for a number of years, she said, I was the publisher of Miramax Books. I never understood that all publishing houses have to have one person who is the publisher, legally. I.e., the person who went down to the county seat and put their name on it, right? So that was an interesting thing. But then what happened is she and I were talking, it turned out that my developmental editor now works in a group of some very, very wonderful developmental editors. And her book, I mean, it's a small group, I think there were like tiny. 12 of them or something. Her book, and it's in New York, her book was also uh, edited by a member of that group. And yeah, her name is Sally Artisaris. So the so this group of women were the maybe the first group of women. Sally was um, at uh, Doubleday as well. And there were all these women who came up in the 50s and 60s were the first to be editors of the you know, for Sally was Jacques Cousteau's editor. And and these women are the women who edited our books. And now and now September has started this imprint and so like, so when you start with culture and it comes to September for for me, there was there was no question that I was in better hands being involved with someone who really looked at culture the way I look at culture. So that's a really good question because I we do we just see things similarly and so even as a publisher saying even after I've gone through all of this with with the editor that I have is one of they're probably two of the top editors in the world yeah. but when September says hey Sarah really this thing <laughs> okay like you don't have to resist there's it. no resistance there's no there's no tension because I know that she's coming at it from the intention of putting something out in the world that's going to be of value to culture. And she's your ally. Like, you know that oh, she's yeah. in the ship with you. She's not in her own boat with her own... Mm-hmm. Um, here's what I mean by that. Yeah. Like the, the competitive nature of capitalism seems to individualize one's efforts solely mm-hmm. for the individual instead of a group, a community, a culture. I think from the friends of mine who are part of big houses who have an, a good editor, they have very strong relationships with their editor. Absolutely. Yeah. With the publishing house itself, I don't know one writer now whether they're on the best-selling list where we're not all doing exactly the same activities. Right. I mean, I'm an, I'm a, I'm a novelist. I'm a writer for a small publishing house. My friend, a dear friend of ours, who is still on the bestseller list of the New York Times, when he and I connect, every once in a while, I say, what are you doing? What are you doing? We're doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> there's, there's really no difference anymore for the writer. Uh, we, and you have a book, too, so it's like... I need you to be my publisher today. She's like, I can't. I have to go sell my book. Right. And and that's. I think that's the same for anyone. 
anywhere. But how, okay, so how do you deal with that moment where you have a need mm-hmm. and September can't meet it in that moment? I deal with it by trying to empower her to do it, to be able to do it. That's the difference, yeah. Um, because the reality is is that you're always in in the modern world there are very few people I mean I always joke because uh, so we've both written romances basically with atypical characters and I listened to I was aiming for Nora Roberts when I started writing this okay Apparently, I didn't have it in me. <laughs> but let me tell you. But let me tell you. Nora Roberts figured out very early on when she realized that she was floating Harlequin, right? That she her work was floating a segment of a major publishing house, right? That she said, "Well, I can do that for myself, and I can do that at my own pace, and I can do it." So she basically created the capacity for herself to independently publish herself, right? Mm-hmm. It's all the way that far back. And the thing that I, I so in that way, I feel like I did aim <laughs> at Nora Roberts, right? That she's, uh, she was telling stories in a different way. She was, uh, they were attractive. They were mostly focused on women or groups of people that, the groups of people that are um, not explored. I mean, I always joke, Dora Roberts is a major cross-cultural source for me. I would not normally try to think about a group of white women friends in the Ozarks, right? And she takes me there. She makes it this very good cross-cultural input on these things. Other people do it differently. Uh, Janet Ivanovich has, a, you know, an Italian-American woman and a, and a black woman who are kind of comic detectives together in New Jersey, right? But it's a, I looked at that and I thought, everybody is talking about independent publishing like it just was invented last week. Well, her Roberts invented it way, way back, and other women way, way before that. And right? you know, the, the, to answer the two part, I could, just to your question, which is, one, I have a character, a main character in, in the book, who's Romanian, okay, and who's in exile in Paris. And Stella meets Moshe, the Hong Mo, and he has cerebral palsy, and she has epilepsy, but they're really sexy. Like, they're really, really sexy. And and they're great characters, I think, on their own. They're super... I, I like them very much. So, <laughs> uh, I wish I knew them. Um, but, I mean, I do. But, um, That's good. You know, <laughs> September didn't have me refine them at all. Which yes, you like them, but but publishing houses very often will make the author cut, you know, in a particular way to meet the market. Oh, I made you cut. I cut a hundred pages. Thank you very much. <clears throat> but but I didn't cut it to meet the market. I cut it to make it better. Right. And and when we agreed that it was better, thank goodness it was better that you thought it was better. Um, now, because we have that trust between us, and that's probably true between any editor and a writer, but because she's the publisher, sometimes it'll be like, September, I need help with such and such. Okay, you can either wait three weeks for me, <laughs> or you can do it, and here's the six steps that you have to take. And so that 
Very often I'll choose, oh wait. Sometimes I say, okay, I'll try. And then three weeks later I call and say, I messed it up. But I try. So, but you know, there's that, the empowering yourself to be working together on creative endeavors. Yeah, we could be, it could be completely competitive. But I think it shows leadership that we're not. And it's very much in your best interest that you're not because your well-being as the publisher, like if you're well, if you're, if you're not met by your publisher, it's hurting your publisher as well. And if your author isn't met, it's hurting you as a publisher. But it's actually at another level, I think, with us is that, so I have written a book about um, two atypical heroes, okay? Um, number one, the idea that there are two protagonists is actually not normal, right? That's not the, the usual line, there should only be one. Yeah, but I'm a woman and there's, we operate in groups, okay? Um, her book being published means that there, it's an, it's another world, not the same world, but another world with a, okay, I don't know if you look around in the other room, you'll find a lot of books that deal with alternative universes, because this is stuff that I've learned from my adult son over the years. So we function in an alternative world, and that alternative world is one where there are people who do not look like they should fall in love with each other or be able to fall in love at all, right, do. It's an alternate universe to the universe that says everybody has to look perfect and beautiful. Her book being published makes my book normalized and vice versa. So this is back to the bioethics, right? That's sort of like... This, the more that we see of these more complex characters, the more that we see women portrayed in ways that are different than mainstream writing does, the better off. My book's going to be, my daughter's going to be, yeah. her son's going to be, because we, you know, we, we have these things. So for me, it's not about the, as a publisher, it's not about as a writer, it's about the world that I get to make because we're writing and we're publishing. Otherwise, I'd be doing ah. something else. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. And there are male writers who've been able to, Salman Rushdie, and I'm, forgive me, I'm blanking on the name of the book. It's one of my favorite books, but I can't remember. The one he was ostracized for? No, no, oh, no, no, Salman Rushdie, the only came after, where, where he creates a world where... The alternate world is that if India was the superpower, and it follows a rock band, it's right. basically, it's, it, it's and it's everyone's from India, and it's the Stones and Bowie, and it's really right. this, it's really the story a story of Bowie and, and <coughs> Brian Eno and <laughs> and uh, and Bono, right. but they're Indian, and the whole world is turned inside out. That was a huge hit, and it was it's a beautiful, beautiful book. But it's about one person, right. about the rock star. Right. So I think that's a really excellent point that we, 
women now, when we talk about our books, when people are started reading our books, they're like, I've never read anything like this. It's like one of the number one things that are said in, in the reviews of our books. And I think that's an, uh, fantastic. Like, bingo, we did it, you know. I don't, really don't care what they say after they say, I've never read anything like this because the... I mean, it achieves you have something. a protagonist in yeah. your book that has number one, he's writing a letter to himself in the future. He's reading a letter from himself from the past, mm -hmm. right? And the when I knew that I wanted to be in on this book, right, was when I read the line that I escaped with my family from Romania in a truck full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> a truck. Full of shit. <laughs> that was like, okay, this is like, it's beautiful. It's visual, but it's simultaneously metaphorical, and it's all of these sort of things. And this is the male protagonist of this, of this story, right? And it's because it was during the period of time when, in Romania, if you had any form of uh, difference when you were born, that you were euthanized. And he had severe cerebral palsy, right? But it's a very, very amazing handling of a whole lot of very serious topics. How could I not fall in love? With yeah, <laughs> I agree. Uh, very serious bioethics. <laughs> I feel like we're at a fork in the road. I don't know which way to go with this. Um, we'll go the difficult way. <laughs> so we ready? Okay. Here's what I mean. So, like, one of my friends has Huntington's disease. Are you familiar with? Yeah, you are. It's um, been it's a genetic disease, and I'm probably gonna get this wrong, but it's been said it's like having Alzheimer's, um, Parkinson's. There's one other they always mention, I forget what it is, dementia. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of elements mm -hmm. to it. And it's like, I've known him for 20 plus years, and it's, you know, it's like it's watching this fuse. Mm -hmm. And like, if you and I stumble and bump into a wall, we're like, yeah, whatever, I stumble and bump for him, he's like, oh, I'm another step closer to. Mm -hmm. And um, so part of what I hear you guys saying, because of course he wants to live a full normal life and part of it is like defining normal that's right and what I hear sort of the underlying elements with a theme mm -hmm. is accepting what is as normal I think that's absolutely um, I wasn't difficult that's absolutely, at all but, but you, you got it yeah you got it. Yeah. So, but here, here's my challenge. What is is always changing for me. Like, um, I get it real personal. My ex-wife fell in love with another woman, and there's still healing going on. But there's, what's the relevancy? Um, Like talking about morals and all this stuff, I know from her perspective she made the right move. 
a lot of times from my perspective I feel jilted and in that pain is disharmony mm -hmm. that's where my anger comes up in all this so so the challenge is like what is what really is like even with this whole current political thing going on um I'm at my best when I take a breath and go, there's two people in a lot of pain in that moment that I saw Friday. Today, Saturday, Thursday. Yeah. We're talking about the uh, confirmation. confirmation. Yeah. 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 And... There's no, I mean, I think... Back to bioethics, okay. Bioethics is a professional field, but it is also an organized way of reasoning about ethical problems and moral problems. Because it all comes at you in five or six different directions, right? But it also weights the reasoning, so everything always starts with beneficence. Is this going to do good or do harm? Right? Is a confirmation hearing going to result in good or harm? Is it going to do that? And then if it passes that first level, then the next level is... So in the situation of how you approach what is happened with your wife, right? And the next level is, is what do you really understand about all this stuff? The autonomous understanding of what's going on. Can you make a decision... Can your own understanding be enhanced to the point where you can make a decision about what the next action should be? And then, if you get through that, then the next question is about the justice stuff, okay? What is the equal, you know, there's more people in this quarry than you and her. There's kids, and there's all these things. It's sort of like, how is everybody going to get what they need to grow and develop? Because morality is inherently a thing which expands to make things be good. Similarly, with the confirmation hearings um, that are going on, it's sort of like that's the complicated piece is what is the obligation to do good with the appointment of a Supreme Court justice? Never mind all the politics, but what's the obligation to do good? Okay, so like we have an individual who's the leader who my personal belief is that man will never nominate anyone who I think, I'm glad they're a judicial Supreme Court person. <laughs> and half the country, you know, he, he's, he became our leader. And from what I see, I don't think a lot of people have changed their mind. I hear it in media, but I think he would be voted in today. Oh, I don't maybe. know. I mean, right, maybe, maybe. but there's been a lot, I mean, but but the issues, and I think this is also important about bioethics, is that the issues are being, are being aired. Yeah. The dialogue is as important as the outcome. Okay, but it's been aired for, it's been aired for 2,000 years. Yes. Well, well, not really. really. Not really. It's been aired by in men. California. <laughs> no. In California, it's been aired. All right, so, like, I had this profound experience with Passover. My dad was Jewish and my mom was Catholic. And about five years ago, um, it was talking about um, slavery and how the, the slave owned 
there is pain with the slave owners as with the slaves. Like it is just a painful environment, mm-hmm. and to recognize that. And this was the profound thing. I was grew up with this, you know, ceremony. And just five years ago, mm-hmm. this line, where it said, "Our children are always going to bring it better than it was." Like there, there is an evolutionary process to peace that is happening, that is alive. I think that the Jewish, the Jewish idea around this is very different than that story. That ancient Jewish story is about how the when Moses showed up, the slave, the slaves, and the slave owners were related. Okay, so that's that is when I talk to my friends from. Iraq and Iran, they they will say, you know, when the Jews left, uh, there was a loss in the culture. So, I mean, I think that we're, those are kind of, that's a big idea. So in Jewish America, particularly Jewish American after the Holocaust, I think people got really focused on the idea of making things better for their children. I don't think that that is the case in African American, for African Americans. No, what I read, what I heard Mm -hmm. is it wasn't I'm making it better for my kids. Yeah. It's that my kids are going to do it better than I ever could have. That they are, that we are in this evolutionary process and that they will be closer to freedom than I was. And their children will be closer to freedom than they were. Maybe, but in, the, in this idea about what what's normal or not, I think that I, it was the thing I was thinking about for... Dr. Ford is that she's sort of taking civic chemotherapy for everyone on that day. It was really like, it was really painful to watch, you know. Um, I think that one of the things that that interests me, and I know it interests you, is that what's normal is very often what's the most toxic. Right. <laughs> so, so, so in the state that we're living in now, I've been actually traveling between here and Romania for a project. And I've been going back and forth between here and a country that was, for how many years, under total totalitarianism and dictatorship. And they laugh. They think that we're so upset. They're like, ah, this is easy. Oh, you got right. it it's easy. Like, like, right. are you kidding me? Oh, yeah, that's textbook. And and it's been very helpful to me, actually. Um, it's also very, very different. But, but what they struggle with and what we're struggling with in cultures that are being sort of suppressing and... Trying to be and trying to be supremacist. Ultimately, that's the goal. It seems to be supremacist, super, supremely white. It seems. Um, some very very scary stuff. And I think what it's doing is forcing people to kind of come out of the closet as not being normal <laughs> and just being themselves. That's very important to young people and very important to children that I talk to. Uh, very important to them. I mean, this dialogue kind of segues back to book three. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Cove International Publishers has, within the last Six 16, 16 months, yeah. published three books. Okay. The first is Chasing Mercury, the second is What Stella Sees, and the third is Bizarrely. Okay, so this is Chasing Mercury. This is what Stella sees. Okay. 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 And this is 
The Elephant in the Room, Bioethical Concerns in Human Milk Banking. Okay? And this is basically a story about issues between um, infant mortality and the mortality and morbidity of mothers in relationship to not having enough access to human breast milk. Uh, it's done in conjunction with the um, Mother's Milk Bank of, of San Jose. Um, and the reason that this is important is that it basically was published in the same week as a working mom took her baby to work on the runway of the fashion week nursing. So there is a there is a connection here between the issues around why we write books that are have atypical heroines and heroes and and the confirmation hearings why it's important for a woman who, let's not forget that she is a psychologist. Is Dr. Ford you speaking? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. She is a psychologist. Yeah. That she has a uh, moral obligation and a professional obligation to look very closely at the implications of endorsing um, what is for want of a, uh, a stronger terminology, the frat boy attitude that is kind of pervasive in the evolution of power structures of men in the United States and the rest of the world. Like, these things, you turn a blind eye to things that are done when people were young. Because they're normal. Because this is normal. <laughs> so it's for me, as a clinician, I look at, at and I think psychologists, whether or not they are clinical, are trained from a clinical view, if you see someone, if you see a child pulling the wings off of a dragonfly, that is very different than swatting a fly that is around you. That is no empathy for that creature. If you see that same child at 10, okay, um, strangling a cat, you call that person a sociopath and you watch them very, very carefully. Right? So, the fact that you never see anything like that again, right, because you're not there right, to see it, doesn't mean that that was not a part of them at some point. So as a psychologist coming forward and seeing behavior that is sociopathic, uh, that's a really important move that has been made to say, no, the frat boy thing does not wash if you have to be in a... Um, a position to make decisions about everybody else in the world. You blew it with Clarence Thomas, and I have, I mean, she she's not a lawyer, right? She has, but she has also a professional responsibility that says that someone who does this on a campus to a woman, at this point in time, it's not like all of the people who are assaulting women on campuses right now are actually being arrested, convicted, going to jail. There's programs at every major campus in the United States that deal with sexual, erection, sexual harassment and sexual abuse right now. Right? They're constructed programs to teach women how to physically defend themselves. 
fine under these circumstances. At the same time, it's sort of like, well, you can't blame somebody for doing that back then. It was a different time, a different standard. But psychologically, it's the same kind of narcissism then as now that makes a person do that. That that's a, you know at the, at the core of it. All right, but I have I, I have faith that we evolve. Yes. And as one of your examples, I remember as a kid pulling the wings off flies because then I'd throw them in the spider webs mm -hmm. and they wouldn't fly away. And mm -hmm. I was fascinated with those tunnel spiders. But now, did you move on to strangle a cat? No. That's the point. But I but that's what I mean. Like I definitely have step stones that if my life stopped at that point and I was judged by that, right. I'd be horrific. Right. right. God willing, I'd evolve. Right. And, right. But you didn't move on to strangle a cat. So the question is that the nominee I certainly hope to move on to strangle a cat, right? But that would actually require talking to someone and interacting with someone yes. who might have direct knowledge about whether or not they had moved on and seen him strangle a cat. That's, you know, that's the, that's the difference. And I think it's absolutely horrible. This whole thing is horrible. But the dialogue around it, right, Honestly, I wish the press would just get out of it, right? What do you the, mean? the press, I mean, the the twenty four hour news cycle mm -hmm. and the hype and the, mm -hmm. this that and the other thing. Okay, I mean, I would rather read the the proceedings after they were over than have the commentary that is going on about about this about the questioning about the hearings about all of these things because the commentary. Is when you read something, that's what you, I love about reading, you put the voice in your head that you want to hear. You do not have to accept the voice that is reading it to you. You don't have to accept the actor's voice. You look at the words. Right? I learned something interesting in this last week of watching Instagram while all of this 24-7 news and casting has been. And there are there are people and organizations on or businesses on Instagram which just show beautiful pictures of books in interesting places or bookstores. It's kinda of called book porn. It's like, you know, and it is and I'm I am the first one to click follow, follow, follow. You know, stacks of books this way and then the room is white and the room is green and you're like ah, you know. So it's like, you know, for Keanu Reeves it just elbow Give me a book. So, um, but the this last week has been like whoosh, everyone is taking pictures of their favorite book, and my and books are all over your books are all over the place. Yeah, books of pe nice. people are sending each other books, and and I and then everyone says, well, you know, reading uh -huh. books and publishing books is dead. Well, it's the same thing they've been saying about the theater forever. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's the same thing. That Greece was a long time ago. Greek theater. We still have theater. So. I am encouraged that what I see is people being a little, some people, and particularly young people, that I know I'm you know, lucky to have a, a young tween, is their interest in language, the interest in storytelling, the interest in understanding that everyone's got a story, this idea that people have a right to have a story, 
a right to have a, a, a voice. Um, I think that that's going to be a good evolutionary movement, you know, forward. For, forward. That the, the the evolutionary biologists are probably looking at this with great curiosity and saying, what is this tectonic shift in culture and in the world? How are people changing? And it is interesting to see that people are interested in a story. I think we do evolve. Yeah. Yeah. I think we do evolve. And the the what I think having children and raising children and interacting with young people is one of the quick pathways hmm. to, to evolution. Mm-hmm. Whether you're, they're yours or your kids' mm-hmm. friends or, or wherever you can find them. And one of the ways of doing that is um, books, uh, children's books, uh, having books around uh, that do those things. And I think that's part of it, even though I have training in film, I review films um, as a part of my major writing activities. And those things, I do believe that there is a core thing about books. They stay with you. I have books in my possession that I had 30 years ago mm-hmm. and 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Not all of them, thank goodness, but, you know, that sort of thing. But I think that there's something, there is something, you know, when the when the library at Timbuktu burned, I cried mm-hmm. because there is something about not just what was written, but who wrote it, why, what they said, how they were revised, the very core beginning stuff. It's different to read Shakespeare and to read what somebody has said about Shakespeare. You know, so there is. This, that was what made it attractive to me at this point in my life to spend more of my time writing and telling stories that were related to the culture and the family that I grew up in. Um, and I think that, that this whole thing, books, comes back. I was amazed when my daughter started graduate school at Northwestern. She told me a story which I didn't know was being done, which was that the the you know they do some physical activities and they have people line up and you know um, and they ask them take two steps forward if you live in a house if you grew up in a household that had more than ten books in it. and they started looking at social economic level in relationship to books. Well, my daughter comes from a family where both of her parents are doctors, her grandparents are all college educated or higher and these sort of things and and you know, they're we've slimmed down, but there are probably a thousand books in this in this house, right? Um, over over this time. But I never knew that the number of books actually reflected a socioeconomic and cultural level of understanding for college students. It seems like it should be intuitive, but I never knew that it was measured. Like your ability to be around and exposed to books from a very young age, right? And it's not like if you have 40 books, right? You very likely are not going to end up in college when you grow up. If you have a couple of hundred books in your house, you immediately up the ante to do that. So I like to tell people, it's like, look and see who won the Caldecott Award this year. 
Okay, and make sure that book is in your house for kids who come, for kids who visit, give it for Christmas presents, give it for holidays, give it for birthdays, and those sort of things so that you are actually stacking the deck. Right? I want to talk about this because you know, this is the most recent. So what's important about this book is that it brings together all of these concepts that we're talking about. Um, um, this book very much has to do with Sarah and that I was invited by her to get involved with Mother's Milk Bank as a bioethicist. And almost two years later, um, I realized that the report that I did for them uh, on how they could um, look at their strategic planning in terms of expanding donations had really a lot to do with um, what the needs of the world were right now, which is the normalization of breastfeeding in all societies in order to make babies healthier, particularly babies who are at high risk for infant mortality. And that is something that is completely 100% changeable by women, parents, uh, and a society allowing people to breastfeed more openly and making time and space for that. So this book was actually created, but surprisingly came to fruition at the same time as the mom was breastfeeding on the runway. So books for me, though I love film, I love television, my daughter is a marriage and family therapist and my son is a tech and artist kind of person. They both got like two, two halves of me, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and of their father, who's a musician and a physician. Um, but the presence of books in households, even at a time when you can get almost every book in electronic form, right? We were looking at this, so Sarah was here, and she was like, so, so, have you read Lead Words? And I'm like, that's Lead Words. The next book of the Chasing Mercury series is, is about lead. It's called Weighing Lead. So I'm doing research for it. I keep things on the table that I come to when I'm having coffee, I read through them, I do things with them. You do not do that when it's all electronic. So the print book, I think, remains a very important thing, and that is part of the reason that I wanted us to, to actually do that. It's important in terms of art, and the creativity, um, the covers on each of these books were designed by Marta Johansson, who's an incredible artist and architect. Um, but it is absolutely essential that more publishing be done and more stories get told uh, in a format that people's not only economic level but social economic level can grow and develop over time. Um, so that's kind of... I think, that's that's why I got into so you wanted to talk about the business and the publishing thing. It's sort of like I can't even I it's exhausting to do all of this stuff. There's so much to learn. Every day it's something else. Like why should I put this in this category or why should I do that? How, how should we promote this or how should we promote that? But the reason that I do it is because I think that the transfer of information uh, and emotion are what make that big evolutionary jump that you're talking about. You know, 
nothing changes until something moves. Albert Einstein. <laughs> Not to give away. <laughs> Albert Einstein. Yeah. So, it's, uh, so I think that, that books tend to move things along. The kid that drags a book around with him for a week is different than the kid dragging around his iPad <laughs> with his electronic book. And, We can dive down this rabbit hole for a long time <laughs> because there's I so can't much. I believe you set yourself up for this. <laughs> well, it's like because what comes to mind is indigenous cultures, where obviously storytelling is very important to the health of that culture, but it's obviously a spoken story, spoken word. My youngest daughter loves to read, and her sister got her a Kindle. So she likes a hard book, but she also loves the Kindle because it's so flat and easily taken wherever she is. You know, it's also the point of view. So so one of the things that I was grateful to September about was that I didn't have to change the structure of my book. And the structure of my book came from told Talmudic review, Old Testament uh, style of, of reading, which is... You read it. You read from Moses's point of view, and then you read it from the people who are waiting. Like, when's Moses going to show up? You know, you everybody's got their own right. point of view. Back and forth. The and, and so that storytelling is also being flexible with the point of view. Right now, we live in a time where there's only supposed to be one point of view. Right. <laughs> there is an autocratic point of view, and by having two characters or multiple ways of discussing a topic from different points of view, you're actually, it's actually quite, um, what's the word? Uh, it's like challenging. It's wholesome, but it's challenging. It's a little bit, uh, um, it's a little bit troublemaking too, because you know, <clears throat> you, you're asking people to, to not just accept one point of view. And totalitarianism is accepting, ex- forced, being forced upon with one point of view and then finally saying, okay, all right, I'll take it. We'll just accept this one point of view. Just don't kill me. Well, that's what totalitarianism right, is. Right, right. So we're now, you see the world pushing back and saying, no, there are multiple points of view and we will not move from that. And then that expresses itself in literature, if it expresses itself in movies. And you one, know. Of the, one of the things I loved about Sarah's book from the be- absolute beginning, and I'm just going to, uh, redo the table of contents, right? It starts with prologue. A letter to Mo from Mo from fuck all nowhere. And then the second part of the prologue is seizures from Stella for Stella from some place below the sea. Okay. And then the book is divided not into chapters after that, but into waves. Wave one, wave two, wave three, wave four, and an epilogue. In wave one, for instance, okay, where Stella starts, medical establishment, Stella, Michael, and Rachel. Lillian, Andrea, Michael, and Stella. The conference table, which is a lot of medical kind of things, and in transit. Now, Many tables of contents do not deliver on the promise that they make. But this book does deliver on that. 
all of those points of view are present in wave one. So it's not just the voice of Moish telling the story about what's going on. It's the voice of all of these different inputs going on. That is not a typical novel structure that a commercial house is going to be interested in. Because what if they don't want to hear about what Andrea has to say or what Lillian has like? Well, they don't want to see the book from that point of view. You want them to lock into only one character. That is an inherently, for want of a better word, masculine or high or historically hierarchical way of looking at what's important. This is the exact opposite. This is about a communal 360 of the story. Um, so I think at its best, if when you look at the things that women bring to the table of history, it's that point of view. It's that salon that people sit in. And this book structuralized that. And I fell in love with it by the structure before anything else. That brought up a question. Do you think that, based on what you just said, women are more at ease in what I would view as conflict? But it's really for the feminine, and this is obviously a generalization, but like, you, I may witness an argument between you two, and I would be uncomfortable. It would be hard for me. I'd be challenged, all that. For you two, there's a benign element. Hmm. Because they're women? Or because right, because of what you just said about the predominantly male hierarchy established of a singular view that's going to win out. Well, the idea that there's an expert view, right? I mean, I think this is part of my bias against it because of medicine as well. The idea that there's any one person in a team that is the expert on that person who is sick. It's not. It's I need the 360 on that, too, in order to know what that person might need next. Somebody's going to look at how their mind's working. Someone's going to look at how they respond to nursing care. Occupational therapists are the most important people in the world, as far as I'm concerned, and physical therapists, because they are getting this feedback sort of thing. But in terms of publishing, okay, this is not a typical way to publish a novel. To the, the instinct, and trust me, I tried. I tried to restructure the contents and reread. I did it by hand. I said, okay, what if we call this chapter one and this chapter two and this chapter three? And, said, blah, blah, blah. and then I realized what I was doing was trying to fit. I didn't tell her I tried this. To try to fit this, try to fit this into a normal structure. Because before I handed it to Eric P. Carlson, right, I was playing around with inserting it into templates and seeing how it would look. And I said, well, I said, what, am I crazy? Right? But it's because of exactly what you said. It was operating off of a different cultural base, which happened to be the Talmudic base, of, of how to tell a story from multiple views. Right? Now, Talmudic culture is not particularly known as being a feminist culture. <laughs> you know, but the point is, is it's not just the hierarchical view that comes with sort of modern 
uh, cultures and, and modern societies. I think and also to, to, to your question about are women more likely, if I understood this question, are women more likely to be comfortable with conflict? Is that yeah. what you were saying? Yeah, well, it really depends on which cultures you're talking about. You know, I'm from New York, and when I moved here, being direct and being angry was, you know, it's not so cool. <laughs> you know, and I'm from New York, and I think that I, I, my friends are, a lot of them from New York or black, because I know that someone's going to be like, you're full of, what the hell are you talking about? That's the stupidest thing i ever heard. Oh, really? Okay. That, we will have those conversations. What? That's crazy. Really? You think so? Yeah, it's dumb. Oh, my gosh, dumb. Now, if you have, <laughs> I'm grateful. Good, I didn't do the dumb thing. But in other cultures where you come from, especially in the United States, that would be the rudest thing possible for a woman to say to another woman, that's a stupid idea. I mean, that would end in tears. So you really, de- I mean, it, it you really depends. You can't generalize. You can't generalize. Like, yeah. where someone is from and where someone's feelings about being polite and, where and being good. what somebody's gender is. And back to Dr. Ford again. I mean, how many times did she say and it was her go-to statement that they obviously decided to have, which was, I just want to be helpful. I'm just here because I want to be helpful. And part of that was heartbreaking. Because even on the stand, she was well, not even on the stand. She wasn't supposed to be on the stand, but it really felt like she was. She was just trying to be good. Right. She was just trying to be nice and not create conflict. Right. And, and, and present this horrific information... <laughs> Right. about a possible date rape and having being brutalized the rest of her life and having breathing problems. Clearly she has breathing problems. Um, but she didn't want to upset anyone. So, you know, I really think it depends on where people or women are from. and The culture of the culture. woman. That, <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. For me, what's most important, what I would love is to see Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford heal. Like, I don't know the truth. There's so many elements in life that I won't know the truth. But those two particular people are absolutely involved in something. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think is more likely to be open to healing? I think they both are. Oh, gosh, you do? I do. I have faith that we want to heal. That's a, that is a, that is our natural state of being. If he is a, what I believe to be a profound, possibly a profound alcoholic, who's in incredible denial, and his neurologically he was drinking by the time he was under the age of 21, and if he was a binge drinker, by the time he was 24, 25, he had technical brain damage. How, what does healing look like to you? For him. <laughs> well, for him. Mm-hmm. I, what would it look? Who would I he think be? If, if, healing. What would he look like? Looks like a relaxed state of being. Can you can you visualize him relaxed? Absolutely, I can visualize Trump relaxed. There's one photo. I start. There's one photo of Trump that is in my mind of him with his grandson. And the photo is beautiful. It's a grandfather and a grandson. And 
what I saw there is like, all right, so this person has love. There's a whole lot of other stuff, obviously, but in that moment, there was just love for a grandson. The best example I can think of is I heard that Thich Nhat Hanh, who came into prominence when as a teenager, he wrote a poem about these pirates raping this young girl. And he did it from the point of view of their pain. Mm-hmm. That for them to, to take that action, there's so much... They are so off their natural state, which is a place of pain. Like that, that action couldn't have happened if they were in a natural state. So there was an empathy... And, and it's not, it's not um, making it right, but there's an empathy for I, for you to do that, you are in pain. You are in pain. You're and that's what I think, that's what I love about what I see here. Like, and part of what attracted me to what I see you guys doing, again, from like bird's eye view, right? Um, In women's studies, I find that these kind of dialogues that we're having happen. Like, I remember when I first read Bell Hooks, and I was like, fuck, finally, this is like some of my whole life I've been looking for this. And, and I experienced later on in women's studies, like some chaos, you know, that human element where it's just off. It's just like, wow, that's just... And I think it's so easy to forget that the monsters in our life are human too. Hmm. I don't ever forget that they're human. I think, you know, well, first of all, I hear what you're saying, you know, I mean, I had you with bell hooks. But, uh, <laughs> wow, that's like, check. Uh, okay, let's keep talking. So, um, bell hooks, you know, changes a lot of lives because it's the truth, uh, you know, from the point, another point of view. Um, there's a, the French word is sacred monsters, okay? Monsasak. So, you know, the those characters are always the most interesting to write because you get to be yourself at your worst, you know. Uh, but but or whomever, you know, you get to talk about whom you've seen nuts. Um, but I think that um, I don't ever forget who's really cruel. In my life, you know, who's ever been the people who've been the cruelest? They don't. I don't think they really leave. So, so I hope for um, for this grandfather. You know, that's the president whom I don't um, uh, agree with or, or appreciate. You know, that he has love for his grandchild. I, I should hope so. That's normal. <laughs> In the good normal. <laughs> but that's part of what I mean. In the but good that's normal. the good normal. That's like, hopefully he has some semblance of, of 
concern and care unless he's a totem narcissist and just likes the kid because the kid looks like him. I mean, that's sometimes the case. But um, do all people have the capacity to heal? At this current time in history, I think that's really the question, isn't it? Okay, my personal answer is yes. Everyone absolutely has the capacity to heal because I believe we are created and the divinity and sacredness which created us created it with love and peace and that's our natural being and everything else is our own personal mistake so maybe the question is more not about the capacity to heal but the ability to actualize that capacity. Which goes back to what you were saying earlier about I mean, being I believe that, that you know, the Supreme Court nominee um, has the capacity to heal and to help Dr. Ford heal, right? But does he actually have the ability to actualize that capacity? It could be the most important thing in this man's life for him to heal from that which he knows mm -hmm. was wrong, assuming that he knows that it was wrong. And I think that that's where the age difference comes in. I think that the age that he is, the fact that he has a daughter, right? the fact that these things that he knows that whether admitted or not, many of his interactions with young women and girls have been wrong over time. That's what that anger was about. Right. Yeah. That he would be seen at this time in his life as someone who did those kinds of things, despite the fact that he very likely did those kinds of things because this is the campus nature, mm -hmm. even now that is being fought against. Mm -hmm. is the frat boys, the jocks, the this, the that, that thing. But all of them have a component where either the women have to man up to protect themselves from that stuff, literally, right, literally, or they are are that is the culture that is on the campus. So he knows he doesn't want his daughter there, and he doesn't want to be participant in that happening for his daughter or his granddaughter in the future. Right? But does he have the capacity uh, to actually actualize the healing that needs to be done? I mean, if this whole thing let's this whole thing could have gone a completely different way, right? Yesterday. He could have said, I don't remember having done that. If that happened, I am profoundly ashamed and I apologize to you. Yeah. He could have said that, but the politicians would not have let him do so if he wanted to. And Trump. No, the, Trump would not have let him do so if he wanted to. There is not much that on any side of this argument would have said that that man could admit that he was wrong, that could make an apology, that could hear out 
the person that he had harmed. I mean, that's what a court of law is, that you have to, you know, listen to. This is more in the line of, of uh, victim um, reconciliation movements that are happening around the world. That is a progressive judicial action, right? To have people face their accusers, right? And then to come to some resolution that does not just simply destroy. Now, that is someone that you might want to be a Supreme Court justice. Okay? That is the evolution of that is the evolution of justice, not the medieval lock them up, lock them like this, that, and the other thing, but he was not there yet, and neither was the system that was there. If instead of calling it a hearing, right, or their day in court, if they said, this is a truth and, truth and reconciliation activity, that would actually be an enormous breakthrough in the history of American politics, right? And funny thing, you know, even if you look at what happened in South Africa with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, everybody didn't want it, neither on the apartheid side, apartheid government side, um, and certainly not the secret police, and certainly not on the side of the victims of people whose children have been killed and all of those things. It was hard right to do that. The difference was that the nation would never have been reborn. That brings it right back to what you started with earlier, about willingness to stay. That's what South Africa did. Like, it was hardcore. And it was fire. The oven was on hot, and people stayed. And they stayed. I really recommend a documentary I watched called Quincy. I saw it. Quincy Jones? By his daughter. Have you seen it yet? I have. Oh, it's so good. It's really great um, because it's by his daughter, by a, by his own test, a one of the great Lotharios of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a great playboy, as they used to call it, right? Now we might call it something else, but he really was. But he was really committed to how can I look at the beginning of my life and see the pain that I have and how I get out. He was very clear on what got him out, which was music, to... Once he was in music and realized he was a genius, he went to find out everything he could about music in general. And the final thing was to break out of having one point of view of music, that music has multiple points of views and multiple entry points, and that that in and of itself could create peace. That's Quincy Jones' belief. And We Are the World is that. It's all those people singing We Are the World with different points of view from different backgrounds. It's because he he hooked on to what black culture has inherently in its art forms as why I think it's the the American art form, of course, is is jazz and and so on and so on and so on and so on. But they come from different points of view. So I was thinking that that... That documentary's got to be one of the best documentaries I've seen in a long time. Yeah, it's really worthy. And it's a a documentary about where we started, which was, what is culture? And he really asks those hard questions. Yeah, Yeah, and I thought him... um, It's the circle we draw around ourselves to define ourselves. That's... And he says, like, he's asked, is there anything you didn't do well in your life? He goes, marriage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I and especially his second marriage because mm-hmm. 
she even says, like, I didn't have the strength. I couldn't. I lost myself because he was so busy with the whiz and all that. And that's part of what I find interesting is, is it possible to progress as a self and achievement not for the accolades, but for the surpassing of the personal challenges that happen in that process of achievement and keep a personal relationship. Well, I think she was saying something a little bit different, if you don't mind. I don't what I heard that. her say. Uh, Peggy. <laughs> Peggy, I mean, you know. Excuse me, I have to go watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Peggy, 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 you can't remember, she was the mom's Lipton? Mom. Peggy Lipton. Peggy, what I heard Peggy Lipton say was, at that time, I did not know how to just focus on myself while he was so busy. And I think that's a really important point, which is, as we evolve and as more and more autonomy is lent to women and to understand that you have to take care of yourself, too, and you have to have your own life in order to be in a healthy relationship. Um, it was hard. He, he was a tough customer because he really did commit himself so fully that he would have you know, cerebral aneurysms, he'd, his brain would explode, literally, and he'd have heart attacks, and then he'd have, you know, I mean, the guy just is a walking testament to how the body connects to everything, right? So, I heard her really being self-reflective there, and saying, I really wish I had known then. And that's the truth for, I think, the generational thing that's happening too, you know? People are figuring out that they really can't be healthy in a relationship if both people aren't taking care of themselves. But that's why I asked that question of what does, you know, what does a Kavanaugh or a Trump look like happy and whole? And it's interesting that you say relaxed. Um, with their child, with their grandchild, with their... So I, I, I think that's, that's back to the same thing, this sort of morality. There is, I've delivered a bunch of babies in my life um, to, for other people's babies. There is a look in the eye of that it's, it's exchanged between the parents at the moment of the delivery that even if the baby was conceived in total chaos, that you, like, in the delivery room, the nurse and the doctor kind of go, there it is. They look at each other, they look at that baby, and it's absolute wonder. Absolute wonder. That is a human imperative. It is really, really, if someone doesn't have that look, right, then you're in trouble with that person. These are things that are, you know, this, the fact that you can take a newborn baby and put that baby on its mother's chest and it will find that nipple within five seconds, okay? There are th some things that are just human imperatives. So, yes, Mr. Trump should enjoy his grandchild because he is a human being. There are other aspects where that sort of morality, morality has to do with being human. Right? That core stuff that makes you human and humane right? 
is is there, and somehow there is a structure in you know the modern society and even in old society that was competitive, that was this, that, and the other, that can supplement that by using things that are of less value than those emotions that you see when someone sees their grandchild or their child, right? And pretending like they are more valuable. So that, but finding that core, that morality is that core thing. Yeah. Do you remember Ben Casey? Are you old enough to remember that TV show? Yeah. Okay. So Ben Casey um, would uh, start out. He was the it was the first medical TV show. Track based, right? Right. Well, he was he wore white lips, so he was an intern, and this was in the fifties and early sixties, and. He had a mentor who was named Dr. Zorba, and the beginning of the show always started with Dr. Zorba going to a chalkboard, and he would put sexism, man, the symbol for man, the symbol for woman, the star is the symbol for child or life, right, and then infinity, and he would say that as he was doing it, man, woman, life infinity, right? And those are these core things that have to do with human beings. The infinity comes from the generations, right? Morality is all bound up in those simple concepts. That's it. It's like man, woman, child, or creation, and then infinity, which is death. Then there's a little thing in between that I left out, which is death. Death and then infinity, right? Um, so so that's what, uh, you know, that's what, we, you can put all the structures you want to on it, but when it comes down to it, the lack of empathy for other people, right, that seems to be reflected in some political structures, which is basically what's happened with these confirmation hearings, right, that lack of empathy is riddled with things that are just related to human-made structures of politics. You have to get past those human-made structures of politics to get back to morality, right? The idea that a group of people are going to sit in a room and behave like gladiators with one on one side and one on the other side is essentially an inhuman act. It's not humane, it's not human, right? But it is the structure of the political structure that's going on there. At any point in time, it could have been, but, but I'm sure that if this man had wanted to, he would not have been allowed to jump that fence. I cannot believe that at that moment in time, when all of that was going on, that he went to the script. I do not believe that he wrote the script. Yes, I agree. Okay? I don't believe that he may not have had the wisdom to apologize he could apologize for her feelings, even if he did not want to admit but that possible empathetic interaction, right, that he could have had was destroyed by the political structures. Okay? So we'll never know if he had that in him. So the conflict that he had, I would like to think that the conflict was because he knew that there was nothing that he could do with this except 
play the party line because if he wanted to be a Supreme Court justice, he could not have made a mistake when he was 17 years old. There's something wrong with that, right? That's sort of like, yes, you can get paroled. Yes, you can serve your time and go on to you know, live your life. You can even murder people, right? And go on to live a life after that. There, that is a humane way of dealing with mistakes and errors. But it, well, it's not being allowed to happen that way. Like, they literally could have done this in a truth and reconciliation model. But who would win then? Well, see, I think it's still possible. Like right now, he can pick up the phone and call her. Uh, it's, and, and that's well, my hope. I have thought all the way through the Me Too movement, okay, that the truth and reconciliation model instead of the adversarial court model uh, is actually something that needs to be done. I think that they're um, starting to say that and too. Because it's, I mean, I know a lot about truth and reconciliation as a process. And number one, the numbers are too large. When you talk about the the you know the activities around um, the world court or the activities that have to do with identifying major atrocities, the numbers are too large to figure out how to prosecute each person. Okay, the, I mean it's sort of so you have all we know now is that the extent is broad. And someone was asking me what I thought about this is I don't know a medical student who was not approached for sexual involvement by an attending physician at, at over my 30 years of medicine. In fact, many I know many medical students and residents who married their attendings. Right. So what is the difference? The difference is what is consensual and what is not. Yeah. What is done because one person has power over another's career right. and another does not, right? The exploration of that, that's something people seem to sort out among themselves when they marry people that that's happened with, right? But everybody that I know who was a physician in training in my peer group actually had advances made on them. It depends on how tough you were, how much you could scare them how much you could threaten them, but it was never threatening about their job, their position, or anything. It was more like, trust me, you really don't want to do this. Well, I think for my own daughters, the best I can do, my hope, is that they know they can say no by any means necessary. So start off humanely, and if you're dealing with an individual and that's not working, you can go as far as you need to go until they get you. Yeah. And that's the difference between now and then. Yes, that's very true. I had a conversation with my grandmother who was taken in by a family in high school so she could go to school, and their young son was going after her, and she was like, no, I couldn't do anything. Like, it was a given that he, he had that right. It comes keeps just coming back full circle for me in this in this conversation about you know why 
why start? Why why write? Why make art? Why publish? Why do anything? And it's ultimately because we have such, um, in our country, other countries have it. We can always speak for our own, right? Such sickness that that we would have a conversation like this that multi generations of training girls and even boys how not to be attacked um, by by other citizens. So, you know, for me personally, when when there's healing, uh, it's it's not enough. It's not enough to me to think that Kavanaugh will have healing. It is enough when he tries to change something else. I'm not I'm not terribly interested in his own personal healing. I'm very interested in what he would do with that. Yeah. And I think that that is real change. And I think that only people only know about real change when they don't just have one party line, one point of view. And the more that we adapt to the idea of multiple points of view, both and, yes and, um, the better off we'll be as a culture. Otherwise, it'll be the same conversation. That's not terribly interesting, <laughs> you know. But it, it is, it, I have more, I would be much more impressed if he came out of this saying, yes and. This, uh, so we're both members of the National Writers Union, and I carry the International Federation of Journalist Press Pass. Um, as we, as an affiliate of the International Federation of Journalists, which the National Writers Union, in order to be uh, an affiliate, you must be a part of a larger organization. So I can't individually be a member of the International Federation of Journalists without being a member of an organization that's an affiliate. One of the things that has been looked at, I mean, this situation is an all eyes on. This is a monumental change. This is a change in history that is at the level of Martin Luther King Jr. standing up and saying we will not put up with this anymore. Um, it, is, it is such an enormous shift in perspective inside of arguably one of the most powerful countries in the world. Okay. Not because Mr. Trump said so at the UN, but because in reality that's what it is. This is an enormous shift, and if this approach can go on, we will be a very different country in 20 years from now um, than we are now. But it's got to be allowed to run its full course, and the, the goal is not just not getting this man into the Supreme Court. That is the most narrow goal. Okay, people. There are people who were on the Supreme Court who came in very conservative and very narrow and very right wing, right, um, and who shifted over change by reflecting and interpreting the law. That is the difference between a Supreme Court justice and a justice in a other. It's the interpretation of the law that you get to make changes with. So. Um, I was thinking recently about the fact that I just, there was a movie called Loving Out 
last year. Do you remember two years oh, ago? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, loving, and me with all of my you know uh, attempt to understand everything that's related to how we are all divided. I did not realize that it was in 1968 when I was well into my adolescence, right, that the anti-miscegenation laws were struck down in this country. The legal inability to marry between the races still existed until 1968. Mm -hmm. The legal right, right. Now, as a leftover function of things that happened, that happened with the amendments that were made to the Constitution um, at the time of the Emancipation Proclamation, it is those amendments that struck down the 1968. They were also that amendment that made it possible for gay people to be married. It is the most often used thing to allow people the liberty that is actually guaranteed in the Declaration of Human Rights to people of age can marry those who they choose, right? So these kinds of things, these are very gradual, but we're talking about something that happened in 1968 that was 100 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, right? And almost another 70 years before gay marriage was allowed. So there are all of these things. It's very slow processes. It's another reason why books are important. Because I can tell a story in Chasing Mercury that begins just before World War II, right? And ends in the first part of the story actually ends in 1975, but there are two books that follow, right? I can tell that story, right? Because I can write that story. All I have to do is be able to write it. And eventually, we'll get it read. But writing it is so important because it can never be found. What I learned from my grandparents and my grandmother learned from her grandmother doesn't get recorded somewhere. So that's why we do what we do. (laughs) For you, not me.